0: Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Come
1: see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601 835 4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com.
2: Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Good Thursday morning, Mississippi. I hope that you are doing well wherever you are in the state today. If Even if you're not in the state today and you're listening online, streaming the platform, if you will, glad to be with you this morning. It's a beautiful day in central Mississippi. I think it's a beautiful day across the entire state of Mississippi. My favorite time of year by far. Weather starts to get agreeable for those of us who, who like to eat pork ribs. And... Uh, <laughs> We, we get to enjoy the, uh, the change of weather, the changing of the leaves. We get to enjoy football. Great time to be alive. Rhino, how you doing, man? Oh,
2: not too terribly bad for this Friday eve.
3: It is Friday eve. We're almost to the weekend. We are. And we've got a great program for you today. Um, we're going to have on with us uh, Mike Ezell, who is the Republican nominee for the 4th Congressional District down in South Mississippi. My original stomping grounds uh, here in just a moment, and we're also going to talk to Third Congressional District sitting Congressman uh, Michael Guest uh, in the eleven o'clock hour. So, looking forward to both of those conversations. We're going to spend an awful lot of time today as we as we near the midterm election next Tuesday, breaking down sort of the d- dynamics that are at play, breaking down the individual races, giving you some insight into what is likely to occur. Uh, next Tuesday and what that will mean for you. But first, I thought it might make a little sense uh, to talk a little news from Mississippi. As most of you know, or may know, uh, the legislature decided to come back early yesterday. Um, The governor had called a special session for an economic development project that they have called the Triple Crown Project. Uh, I don't know what the third crown is, but there are two facilities that they're talking about uh, building. Um, basically, the legislature voted uh, overwhelmingly to grant an incentive package yesterday st- to Steel Dynamics and some of its subsidiaries. The package includes approximately $247 million in direct state aid to Steel Dynamics. In addition to those resources that are for infrastructure and building and all the stuff that goes into getting a site up and running, Um, Steel Dynamics will also receive a number of tax incentives, including a 15-year 100% corporate income tax credit, which means it will pay no corporate income taxes, a 10-year 3.5% payroll tax rebate, so essentially it will get money back on the payroll taxes that are paid on behalf of its employees, and then a sales and use tax exemption for construction and and equipment um, around the, the building of this facility. So they won't pay any sales or use taxes. Either in exchange, Steel Dynamics has agreed to build two facilities in Lowndes County around Columbus, one a low carbon aluminum flat rolled mill on a two thousand acre site. That is a big, big project. Holy smokes, that is that is a massive site. The construction will begin in twenty twenty three, finish in twenty twenty five on that site. And then they're also going to be building a sort of ancillary site, a biocarbon production facility with construction that will actually begin this year and wrap up, if all goes according to plan, by the end of 2023. In total, Steel Dynamics has promised or pledged $2.5 billion in direct investment in Lowndes County, 1,000 jobs with an average salary of $93,000 per job and benefits for employees that include college tuition for their children. So that is big news uh, for Columbus. One of the other things that came out of that conversation was that Steel Dynamics was saying, essentially, some of our vendors are going to want to locate around us, too. So in addition to the investment that we're going to make, we anticipate that we're going to have others essentially on-site, other companies that come on-site that kind of service what we do. Um, The vote on this was overwhelming. You know, if you looked at the House vote, I think it was like 105 to 5. Um, These kinds of projects tend to be that kind of slanted vote. Uh, There was talk and and some concern, um, you know, leading up to the event yesterday. I think oftentimes that is generated as a byproduct of the fact that there's almost no notice when these things are getting voted on, right? And some of that's just... The reality is you're negotiating a deal with a company, you don't want that to leak out. But if you're a legislator, it puts you in this odd spot that you're voting for something without really, to borrow from the Nancy Pelosi uh, Obamacare days, without really having a chance to know what was in it. And you'd find out once, once it gets passed. Um, and there are other reasons for concern. Certainly some of these projects in the past have not panned out. Uh, particularly if you look at projects that were sort of green energy projects. We had a slew of those um, back during the Barber administration from Keyor to Stion to Twin Creeks to Green Greentech, uh, you know, solar companies and companies that were supposed to take biomass and turn it into fuel and whatnot, and those things uh, didn't pan out and ended up being sort of a, a boondoggle, if you will, or a bad day for taxpayers where in Keor's case, literally $75 million investment kind of went up in smoke. Um, Stein and Twin Creeks were both in the $25 million range. I think the the argument here would be that this is a much more stable industry, that this is not some sort of we're going to try and see if this technology will work. It's something that's already being produced. We already know there's demand for it. Um, and certainly if you're in Lowndes County or in the surrounding area, Uh, you're probably looking at it going, well, $93,000 a year is a heck of a lot better than what I'm currently doing. Now, I I will say that if you're an employer up there already and you're not getting all these tax incentives, um, it probably feels um, like your employees are about to get poached because you don't have the advantage of being able to to do what this company is doing. Um, But anyway, uh, big, big news coming out of... The Capitol yesterday, obviously, the legislative session itself starts uh, right around the corner. It feels like it's right around the corner. January. Do you get that sense like people are more sort of tuned in to what's about to happen?
2: Oh, yeah. People are uh, already making their wish list for what they hope to see come out of the session.
3: Yeah. It, there's just a different vibe as you get closer to session. There's this period post session where everybody's like, you know, takes a deep breath and they go, well, glad that's over. And then they kind of forget about what's happened. Uh, and then as it gets closer uh, we end up with with a different environment so we'll see what unfolds in the next couple months as we head into session obviously 2023 is an election year in mississippi we have off-year elections uh, one of only a handful of states that do that and so every state legislator will be up for election in 23 all statewide elected officials will be up for election in 23 and uh you know As a result of that, we're going to go from uh, midterms that are going to be very interesting right into statewide elections. Generally, in that environment, you don't see as much get pushed in the legislature um, as elections near. But we'll see. They certainly have tackled a lot in the last few years. Uh, One of the things that jumped out of me uh, in looking at some Mississippi news uh, was that on Tuesday night... um, A group, or I guess it's actually Monday night, a group called the Moral Monday Group with the Poor People's Campaign of Mississippi gathered outside the governor's mansion uh, to protest the state, essentially, and its engagement around the water crisis and the call on the state to be held accountable for allowing the water crisis to get to the point that it got to and then, you know, calling on them to do something about it. I I think it is is a misguided approach. Um, You know, certainly... Citizens should be concerned about what's going on in Jackson. Citizens should care about whether or not they have clean drinking water and the right quantity of water, garbage being picked up, police on the streets. All of those things are important. At some level, you can look at the state and say, does the state bear culpability? At some level, you've got to exercise agency. And you've got to say, hey, look, at the end of the day, we're responsible for our own well-being. And as a city, we've got to work to make sure the right leadership in place, the right infrastructure is in place, so that we can be successful. Ultimately, that's how people rise. And, you know, I, I applaud the idea of speaking for people who are historically disadvantaged. I think that needs to happen. Too often there are people who are in forgotten classes that get left. The best thing that can be done for people who start at a disadvantaged place – is to treat them with the dignity and integrity to say that you can be successful, right? And not to look at it as a blame game where it's other people's fault or as the type of situation where other people have to step in and play the role of savior. The state ultimately will do something with Jackson's water. I think there's, there's plenty of motivation for the state to do that. But at the end of the day... If all this is is the state steps in and fixes the problem, then 10 years from now we're going to have the exact same debate. Because what we need to be building is the capacity in communities to deal with problems for themselves. And so, while I applaud the the idea, I think there are probably better ways to go about doing it. One one quick other note on Mississippi News, as we head into break, um, Federal Judge Carlton Reeves appointed a receiver to manage the Hines County, Hines County Detention Center yesterday. This is after a decade of problems there. Uh, cells that don't lock, lights that don't work, the ability of prisoners to climb from one cell to a next using the ceiling, um, guards that don't show up, all sorts of mess. The end result has been a lot of violence there, a lot of problems there. And finally, a federal judge stepped in and said, we've had enough. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, coming at you from the Wealth studio. Russell Tino guest hosting today. We will be back in just a
0: moment. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's <laughs> do
3: Welcome back and good Thursday morning, Mississippi. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting this morning, coming at you live from the Element Wealth Studio. If you're thinking about planning for retirement, uh, if you're looking for a plan, go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees. If you want to join us in the conversation today, you can share your thoughts with us on the Ceasefire text line 601-879-4395. We are joined now by candidate for Congress, Mike Eazell, the Republican nominee for Congress in the 4th Congressional District down on the coast. As I said, my old stomping grounds where I grew up. Uh, Sheriff Ezel, good to be with you this morning. Hey, thank you very much
4: for having me. I appreciate it.
3: So you're in the final days uh, of this election slog. (laughs) Yeah. -hmm. Tell me a little bit about how it's gone so far, what you expect to happen on Tuesday, what you're hearing from the folks that you're talking to.
4: Well, I'll tell you what, it has been 18 months of hard work. Uh, we've been all over the district over the last couple of days. We've been, uh, Stone County, uh, Perry County. We're in Wayne County today. We just have been all over the district, Green County, last couple of days talking to folks. And, you know, we say, we hear so many of the same things everywhere we go. Uh, the price of a gallon of milk, you know, a loaf of bread, a gallon of gas. Uh, do I fill up my car? Do I buy a bag of groceries? You know, they're just, people are, are concerned you know, about the border, about security and things like that. And and that's a common uh, conversation that we've been having around the district. Uh, you know, we're working hard. We're not uh, taking anything for granted. You know, we are a strong Republican district, but I'm asking everybody for their votes. We're out here working hard, meeting as many people as we can, and uh, we're going to keep doing that right up till 7 o'clock on Tuesday night.
3: Well, and you're right that I think most people would assume that you're going to win this election on Tuesday. It is a heavy Republican district. has been for some time now. Obviously, you never want to take anything for granted. You want to work hard until the bell, and then keep working hard after the bell, assuming things go the way that people expect. Talk to us a little bit about, as you look at the landscape, because you mentioned inflation and questions about public safety and questions about immigration and and lots of things that are coming up with your conversations with constituents. What is it when you get in Congress, if you are elected on Tuesday, that your number one focus is going to be
4: well first of all, these regulations that's coming out of the Biden administration, that's something we've got to stand up for. You know, they're just we're being overregulated, we're being penalized for being uh, capitalist, you know, I tell you, uh, you know, we just got to stand up to, uh, these folks that are trying to change our way of life in Mississippi. You know, we love our life here. We love the great outdoors. We love spending time with our families. And, you know, we're just being beat over the head with regulations, taxation. You know, it's just so many things that we've got to stand up for. I'll stand up for the people in, in Mississippi and across this country, I feel, you know, I love my state, I love my country, and I want to do better for the people out there, and I'll do it every day as I've done as a sheriff.
3: So I would assume that in the position that you're in, that you're probably already talking to some of the leadership in your own party about what it would look like, you know, if on Tuesday you're elected. Mm-hmm. T- tell us a little bit about those conversations to the extent you can.
4: Yes. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, we've met with the leadership. We've talked to them, and they're really excited about having a sheriff on board so that we can discuss uh, current law enforcement issues, you know, the, this defund the police crowd that's going around the nation and, and some of those kinds of things where I've got some firsthand knowledge about it, you know. Uh, we're looking at things like that for so that we can provide uh, good information to the to the people so they'll know you know I've got a reputation of law and order get the job done and uh so yeah they're they're really uh excited about me coming on board as a sheriff and with my law enforcement experience so we're talking about those kinds of things and you know uh, we we're so heavily uh dominated in armed services you know we've got Keisler, we've got Camp Shelby, we've got so many uh, military bases in our state, so uh, I'm looking forward to those kinds of conversations as well.
3: Yeah, you know, just as an aside, it's always struck me as a bizarre argument to defund the police, because if you look at the, the polling across the country, even in the wake of some of the more incendiary sort of controversies that have happened, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's a white community or an African-American community overwhelmingly, what they're asking for is more police presence, more uh, effort being made to curb crime and make sure streets are safe. And so it just feels like a complete and total disconnect from what people actually want, which is for their families to be safe.
4: Exactly right. You know, that's one of been my priorities as a sheriff is so that when you know you go home at night and you shut the door, uh, you want to know that you're OK. And number two, when when you do have to call the police and the sheriff's office, we're going to respond and we're going to try to meet you and try to do what we can to help you and your family. And so, you know, I'll do everything I can to help support the, the police and law enforcement through some incentives maybe that could be available, uh, some grants that could be out there to help provide more training and, and better opportunities for these men and women in law enforcement.
3: So in your conversations with leadership, do you have a sense of of where, if you're elected, you're likely to be placed in terms of committees, or is it too early for that?
4: Well, we've, we've had some conversations, you know, and it is a little early. Uh, armed services, Homeland, Ag, you know, there's there's a, so many things that, that uh, I'm just anxious to get in there and go to work with, but we feel pretty good about our opportunities uh, for armed services and, and potentially homeland security. And uh, so, but, you know, we'll discuss that with the leadership once uh, we get through the election. So
3: I'm going to ask you a question that uh, that may be a little inartful, but you've been essentially an, exe- <laughs> in an executive, right? You've been in the sheriff's role. Mm-hmm. You make decisions. You're accountable for those decisions. Your department responds. Mm-hmm. You're about to uh-huh. be, if you're elected, one of 435 <laughs> people that have to try and come together to make decisions. Are you ready for that?
4: Yeah. Well, I guess ready or not, here we come. <laughs> yes, sir, I, I do feel uh, good about it. You know, I came up through the ranks uh, starting out as a, a reserve officer, a jailer, and uh, I've worked all the way up to the top being the sheriff. And, and uh, so, yes, sir, I mean, I'm, I'm prepared to get in there. I work Have – we've done a, a good job here on the coast and around the uh, – the state with our bringing all of our law enforcement officers together, and we'll work hard to do the same thing. If we go to Washington
3: as you as you wrap up these final days. What are your priorities from a campaign perspective, and what's what's the message that you're letting voters know in these sort of last moments to make the case?
4: Yeah, I'm a, uh, a law and order kind of guy. I'm a good citizen. I'll be give, providing you with the best government I can. I'll work with folks to try to get the job done. You know, I want to try to reach out and talk to as many people as I can. You know, I've always been available. I'll always work hard. People know me. Uh, talk to the folks that I've worked with over the years, and you'll see that. I believe in giving a, a day's work for a day's pay, and I think we all should step up and be responsible, good citizens, and uh, going forward, that's, that's a, what I want everybody to understand about Mike Ezu.
3: So, so let me ask you one more quick question. You obviously had a crowded field primary in the Republican Party down in the 4th Congressional District. You, you unseated a long-term sitting Republican congressman as part of that process. What is the environment right now you know, on the coast when it comes to uh, sort of the Republican Party and conservatives. Do you see unification happening around your campaign?
4: Yeah, I do. I have talked to so many different people. And, uh, you know, uh, elections have consequences. And, uh, you know, it's now it's time to rally around the Republican Party and get, get us in there so that we can try to do something about some of this craziness going on in Washington. Yes, I have been very well supported by everybody. We've been talking with Sheriff Mike Ezell. So let me
3: let me ask you. I said well, that was my last question. I'll ask you one more. That's all right. While you're while you're running for Congress, you're also still serving as sheriff. Um, has that been hard to wear both of those hats?
4: It has been. I'll tell you this: we have worked hard. Uh, you know, I've got an outstanding team we've built over the last almost eight years, and yes, I'm still responsible for the people in Jackson County, and uh, we're we're going to keep going right up to the last minute.
3: You, you get any sleep? No. <laughs> Maybe you can do that once you uh, once you get through the election and, and get up to DC. Um, have you spent much time in DC?
4: I have. Uh, well, I've been up twice since the election. You know, when I went to the FBI Academy back a number of years ago, uh, we went to DC on a pretty regular basis. So uh, we're looking forward to it.
3: Very good. We've been talking with Sheriff Mike Ezell, the Republican nominee for the fourth congressional district. Obviously, elections right around the corner. Thank you, Sheriff Ezell.
4: Thank you so much.
3: You're listening to Midday's with Gerard Gibbert, Russ Latino guest hosting today from the Element Well Studio. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: with Gerard Gibbert on. on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Good Thursday morning, Mississippi. I hope you are doing well today. Beautiful day across the state of Mississippi. Russell Tino guest hosting for my buddy Gerard Gibbert on middays here today. Rhino in the, the studio booth over there, keeping things straight, doing well? Trying to. <laughs> I appreciate all the help, especially for a neophyte who's over here trying to figure all this stuff out. <laughs> we just had a great conversation with Sheriff Mike Zell. obviously the Republican nominee for Congress. He's going to find out on Tuesday if he's going up there to be a part of the Wild West um, show that is Washington, D.C., Land of Make-Believe where nothing really makes any sense and logic gets thrown out of the window. Um, I asked that question of him about the sheriff-to-congressman role because I think for anybody who's used to being able to make quick decisions and seeing the results of those decisions immediately, to be tossed in an environment where you're one of 435, and oh, by the way, not very many decisions ever get made, It's a difficult, difficult transition. Yeah, it can be maddening. Not saying he can't do it. I'm just saying it's difficult for anybody. Um, So we'll see how that turns out on Tuesday. Obviously, we're monitoring everything that's going on with the elections coming up uh, next Tuesday, and we're going to dig into that a little bit later and really go race by race by race. I will say, um, because we got some some text from the initial uh, sort of segment of the program, on some of what I was talking about with the Hines County Detention Center being taken over, um, Ben from from Madison says there may soon be a federal judge that looks at Mississippi Department of Correction as a whole if the legislature doesn't act to address some of the issues the Department of Justice has highlighted. He's not wrong about this. Um, and look, I think that Commissioner Kane has done a good job stepping into what was a difficult situation. He came in Really, sort of at the moment of a crisis in our prison system, had a string of, of deaths in prison, a lot of violence, a lot of institutional control that was lacking in the way that that system was being run. And I think he's done a good job. He's put some good people around him. Um, you know, Bradley Lum is a great example of that, a guy who's got a very sort of positive, forward thinking uh, approach to, to criminal justice. I think all of that is, is good. Mississippi still is in a difficult situation when it comes to its, its prison system. And some of that is just a byproduct of how overloaded the prison system itself is. And, you know, I've talked about this before, but the United States makes up 5% of the world's population. It makes up 25% of the world's prison population. So we incarcerate way more people than the rest of the civilized world. I don't think that's a byproduct of the fact that Americans are just worse people. I just, I really don't. I think it's a byproduct of the fact that we, as a society, have criminalized a lot of stuff um, and a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily, you know, one person posing a danger to another person. It's more the kind of stuff that oh, we we just don't like that behavior, and so we're going to make it criminal. We don't think people should do certain things, so we're going to make it criminal, even though those are instances where there might not be a direct harm to another person. Then the end result of that is our prison population has gone way up, and that's been true since the mid-'90s. We had this massive explosion in prison population. Well, unfortunately, in a situation where America has the highest incarceration rates in the whole world, Mississippi has the highest incarceration rates in the entire country, which means we literally are the incarceration capital of the world. End result of that is you got twenty some twenty thousand people, give or take, in prison, a um, little less than that post COVID, but um, and a system that wasn't designed to handle that many people. So that if we're going to continue to incarcerate at the levels that we're currently incarcerating at, we're going to have to find a bunch of money to build new prisons. And and a conservative state finding a bunch of money to build new prisons is not an easy feat. So at some level, what Ben's alluding to here is that the Department of Justice has said, y'all got to fix all these things or we're going to step in and do it. That's what they did in Alabama. It cost the state of Alabama over a billion dollars in, in fixes that they were mandated to make. We want to avoid that. We want to make sure that we're protecting public safety at the same time that we're making sure the system actually works. So I think, I think Ben, you're on to something there. Good strides have been made, but there's a heck of a lot more to be done. And as part of that, we can't we can't confuse some of the sort of national conversation uh, around being smart on crime with saying that we should just lock them up and throw away the key. That's not a solution. And we know it's not a solution because we know 95% of the people who are sitting in prison one day get out of prison. Uh, and preferably we've got a system that allows uh those folks to develop skills and, and develop some life skills that allows them to get out and be successful and not reoffend Thomas and Greenwood also lighten me up this morning. I get the sense that Thomas lights people up every day. Am I right about that? Oh yeah, every time I've guest hosts I get some some conversations uh with thomas he uh he essentially said just to remember that um you know the Senate voted unanimously yesterday in favor of this. Uh, Incentive package for Steel Dynamics, these are some of the same people, at least in his point of view, that didn't want to eliminate the income tax. And I think what he's trying to suggest is that there's some inconsistency. If you're saying we don't have enough money to eliminate the income tax so that every Mississippian benefits from not having to pay income taxes, but we do have enough money uh, for an individual business to provide these kinds of incentives, I think that is what he is driving at. Let let me just say this. I mean, there are philosophical reasons to be opposed to these sorts of incentive packages. There are. I mean, one thing that you could look at and say is, if you don't think government should take property from an individual and redistribute it to another individual, as an example, if you're opposed to the expansion of Medicaid, and your thought process is, it is immoral to take from me what I earned and give it to somebody else, then there at least is an argument that it is also immoral to take from me what I've earned and give it to a company, because that's another form of redistribution. I think one of the other arguments that you hear sometimes is, you know, it's it's great in isolation. So if you're in Columbus, this is a great project. It will be good for the community. People are going to make more money. That's awesome. But in if you think about it as somebody that steps back and looks at the entire state, Well, we've got 1.2 million people working in Mississippi, and they work for all sorts of companies, small businesses, sole proprietorships, larger businesses, many of which who have been here for a very long time, and they haven't received the same kind of benefit or incentive for keeping those folks employed. And if you think about our labor force participation rate and wanting to bring the labor force participation rate up, 1,000 jobs is awesome, but what we need to be talking about is how do you create an environment for an extra 200,000 jobs in the state of Mississippi, right? How do you create an environment for that kind of growth across the board? Even if you are, you know, okay or celebrate the economic incentive packages, you got to recognize that there's no way for the state to spend enough money to create enough jobs. The way you do that is by creating a regulatory environment and a tax environment that benefits everybody. And so I think there's some merit to those points of view. I also completely understand if I'm a legislator and somebody puts in front of me a package that says we're going to create a 1,000 jobs today, that's a really difficult vote to make to say, no, I'm actually not in favor of that, just because of the optics of it, if nothing else. And then we are talking about actually benefiting people, right? So it's not as if there isn't some benefit to an individual community, some benefit to workers. I get all that. Part of what gets lost, too, though, is this idea that it is a thousand new jobs, Um, as if there were a thousand people sitting at home with nothing else to do, and they hadn't worked for years, and they went, ah, now that this job has been created, I will go and work. The reality, more often than not, is it's somebody that was already employed at another company, and they look at that opportunity and say, well, that opportunity looks better, so I'm going to leave my current employer and go work for this employer. Well, if you're that current employer, you're looking at it going, well, I might have been able to keep my employee if somebody had given me the same incentive package, if they had given me direct contribution to build a facility, if they had given me the same kind of tax incentives, I might have been able to compete for that employee, but because I didn't have that, I've now lost an employee, and I've got to go find somebody. All that being said, I completely understand the celebration. I understand the need to compete not just in mississippi but the need to compete across the united states the need to compete globally and whether you like it or not the current economic environment is one where states are are competing hard against each other for these companies and you've got a situation where if you don't play the game or if you don't convince other states to stop playing the game you got no choice but to get in there, right? Because you're, you're going to get beat. You're just going to get beat. And so it's a, a rock and a hard place problem. Philosophical reasons to be opposed. Practical economic reasons to be opposed. Also some reasons that are obvious with a 1,000 jobs and benefit to community to look at it and say that's something that Mississippi has to do to be a part of the game. You are listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can follow me at Russ Latino. easy enough to remember. We will be back in just a moment from the Element Well Studios.
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi.
3: I just like the song. You really are excellent at picking music. Thank just, you. I just want to let you know that. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today. Glad to be with you, Mississippi. Hope that you are doing well. In just a moment, we'll be joined by Congressman Michael Guest to talk about what's going on in D.C., upcoming elections, all the fun stuff uh, in the world. Um, And that will be good. We were talking a little bit uh, before break about sort of the lead-in to next Tuesday. The the sort of run-up to the midterm elections, and we're going to spend a lot of time after we speak with Congressman Guest really breaking down the midterm elections. But, but a big part of this right now is the level of economic upheaval, turmoil, etc., just across the board that Americans are dealing with. I'm reminded of uh, James Carville in these moments, Rhino, when he famously quipped, it's the economy, stupid. Like, at some level, all of these other issues are important, but if you're affecting somebody's pocketbook, if you're affecting the ability of somebody to put a gallon of milk in their refrigerator or some hamburger on the table, that's when they're going to start noticing whether or not you're doing a good job.
2: Right? It's easier to worry about the little stuff when you're eating higher on the hog. No doubt
3: about it. No doubt about it. It's a luxury to consider cancel culture or wokeism or whatever you want to call it when you feel like everything that you need is pretty much taken care of. You've got your iPhone 14, you're drinking your $8 frap, the world is great, and now I get to get on Twitter and tell everybody the world sucks and here's why, right? It's a little different when you start to feel like, oh, Maybe the world actually isn't working out the way it's supposed to. Let me get, let me resort to first priorities or first needs. And that's stuff like how do I put food on the table, rent, electricity, etc. The turmoil shows no signs of abating between now and Tuesday. And candidly, it shows no signs of abating anytime soon. The Federal Reserve yesterday raised interest rates by another 75 basis points. That's now, what, four in a row? Yep. 475 basis point increases in a row, you know, when they in six since March. So when they first started, they started with a 25 basis point increase. And this was at a time where they were still talking about, well, inflation's going to be transitory. It's largely supply chain concerns. You know, this is not something that we foresee being prolonged. And we went from 25 basis points to 50 basis points to four in a row 75 basis point hikes. It's just unheard of, and there's probably more coming. And so the end result of all of that is that you've got a stock market that is spazzing out on a daily basis. I know you guys talk about it being the kangaroo
2: market. Oh, yeah, up and down and up and down.
3: The swings are so wild right now, and it's so volatile. There was a point yesterday when Powell was speaking at first that the Dow was up like 300 points. And by the end of the day, what did it finish down? Close to 500
2: Yeah, something like that.
3: I mean, that is a wild swing in a day. And it's because nobody really knows how bad this could get or how deep of a problem we are in. And so much of this is a byproduct of the fact that the Fed allowed all this stuff to happen for a really long time. We were pumping the system so full of money at the same time that we were pulling back on productivity because of COVID, supply chains concerns, all that stuff. But we put so much money in the system, and the Fed was buying corporate bonds, and everything was great, and people were euphoric about the housing market and the stock market and everything else. And they could not see the damage that they were doing to the economy until it was too late. And suddenly they were like, "Well, heck, we got to stop this, so we're going to jack up interest rates." There's an argument that they're going so far in jacking up interest rates that it's not actually affecting inflation right now, but it is breaking the economy. And you look at something like the housing market right now.
2: Oh, yeah. You got banks left and right having to lay off, who was it that had to lay off 90% of their mortgage lenders?
3: Was that Wells Fargo? I think it was. Yeah. So Wells Fargo came out and announced huge, huge cuts. Mortgage demand down to the lowest point in the last 25 years. Mortgage rates, 7-plus percent.
2: And seemingly only
3: going higher. And you're going to get another 50 basis point increase probably in interest rates in December. It's it's going to go higher. I fully anticipate that at some point, we're going to look up and there's going to be an 8% mortgage rate. And I know what people in my parents' generation say, what, which is, well, during the Carter administration, it got up to 18%, 19%. Nobody that has bought a house in the last 40 years experienced that. So if you're used to sub-4 interest rates or sub-5 interest rates and a market that blew white hot with 40% increases in housing prices and now all of a sudden you're at 7 8%, Talk about a problem to our economy given how much we rely on housing. That's just a piece of what voters are going to be thinking about as they head to the ballot box next Tuesday. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting. When we come back, we'll talk with Congressman Michael Guest from the third congressional district. Be back in just a moment.
0: Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Welcome back, Mississippi. Hope you're doing well on this Thursday morning. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino. Guest hosting, join now in the element Well studio live. Congressman Michael Guest, Third Congressional District. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Great to be uh, great to be home. Uh, great to be on the campaign trail, and great to be sitting in here with you. You,
3: uh, I assume, are are running to the finish line right now. You are running hard to, to finish the race. Um, Tell us what it looks like right now on the campaign trail.
1: You know, you're exactly right. You know, we've been traveling the district now uh, since we uh, began our recess several weeks ago. Uh, and we are uh, have been in all 23 counties uh, this week, earlier this week. Uh, we were in uh, uh, Neshoba County, spent a great deal of time, really a whole day up there uh, in Neshoba County. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Clark County, uh, Jasper County, um, Jones County, uh, and then, then ended the day in Hines County uh uh today uh, is going to be focused mainly here in the metro area uh we're going to be uh here today in Hines county uh and then we'll be in Rankin county uh um, and then probably finish the day doing a little door to door this uh, this afternoon uh great great weather to do that uh doing door to door in june and uh and august uh gets extremely hot but right now the weather is perfect for that so probably in the day uh doing some of that but we're we're working hard just uh reminding people there's an election encouraging people to get out and vote.
3: I think the last part of that is so incredibly important. For whatever reason, in the last couple of election cycles that I've watched that don't involve a presidential, it feels like people maybe just assume, hey, my candidate's going to win this or my candidate's not going to win this, and so they just don't show up. And it's so important to take, take that civic responsibility on and show up and make sure your voice gets heard. So I appreciate you bringing that
4: up.
1: And just reminding listeners, you know, I mean, one of the greatest privileges that we have as Americans is to select our leaders to be able to go to the ballot box. And we've had our uh, soldiers, our servicemen and women who have fought and sometimes uh, sacrificed their very lives to give us that opportunity. And so when we don't vote, uh, we're dishonoring that service. Uh, and so it is important. It is an extreme important civic duty uh, for everyone to go vote. Uh, and I hope that everyone uh, will take time uh, between now and Tuesday if you're going to be out of town? If you're over 65, you can go ahead and vote absentee uh, between now uh, and uh, noon on Saturday uh, at your local circuit clerk's office. Uh, you can also re- re- request mail-in ballots. They have to be placed in the mail. They have to be postmarked by election day. Uh, and we know that the ballots are the polling places will be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, November the eighth.
3: As you're traveling the district right now, because it sounds like you've been in a lot of different places uh, in rapid succession, what are you hearing from people?
1: Uh, a couple things. One is, uh, people are beginning to become excited, uh, for feel that Republicans will retake the House, uh, and very likely retake the Senate. Uh, the issues that people are focused on here are, are the same issues I, I think that we're seeing nationwide. Uh, the economy and inflation clearly are, are number one and two. Uh, it, it impacts everyone, um, and so regardless of where you are throughout the district, uh, those two, um, issues uh, are going to be the, the top two on their list, followed very closely uh, by crime and immigration. Uh, those are all four issues uh, that Republicans poll very well on when you're polling uh, potential voters on who they trust uh, to deal with those issues. And so all of the major issues uh, that are on the minds of Americans are all issues uh, that Republicans uh, really uh, stand firm on, uh, and I think that that's why you're beginning to see um, this uh, enthusiasm building holding uh, not only throughout the district, uh, but I believe across the country, because people want to see uh, the Republican Party retake Congress to serve as a check and balance on what we've seen this administration do over the last two years.
3: You've been in Congress now for four years. This will be your third term if you're elected on Tuesday. Um, talk to me a little bit about the experience that you've had, because you've been in Congress in an interesting point in history not just because the Republican party's been in the minority but there's been a lot going on whether it's covid and sort of the rancor around elections and and there's just a lot of distrust even more so than normal for Washington right now. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, having kind of lived it.
1: Yeah, you know, we, we kind of came in and uh, were drinking out of a fire hose very early. I mean, we came in, my my freshman class, uh, we came into a partial government shutdown. Uh, a portion of the government had been funded, but not the government uh, in its entirety. Uh, we came in uh, under a uh, House of Representatives that was controlled by Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we had uh, Donald Trump as our president, uh, and the economy uh, was doing well. Uh, We saw our energy policies were working uh, under President Trump, but we saw that when Democrats took the House, uh, they very quickly tried to do everything that they could to undo the successful policies. Uh, We saw not one, but two impeachment votes uh, against the the president that were brought forth uh, by Speaker Pelosi, uh, both of which I opposed. Uh, We also uh, saw, um, you know, COVID. uh, You mentioned that, you know, uh, really just a game changer. Uh, And I believe uh, that, you know, once we saw COVID, that was the thing that really tilted our economy if prior to COVID, uh, I believe that Donald Trump was uh, on line to not only win election, but win election easily, uh, and I felt that Republicans had a very good chance to retake the House of Representatives and even pick up seats in the U.S. Senate. COVID changed all that, uh, and when we forced uh, our businesses to shut down, when we forced people to stay home, when we began to damage our, our economy, uh, that had a very chilling impact. And so I've had the opportunity uh, to see a lot while I'm there. I have always been in the minority and in very excited about the potential to serve in the majority in the house
3: what would that look like for you personally let's assume that republicans take control of the house all the prognosticators are saying that's likely to happen does it change your role uh, in in serving in the House,
1: what what we would like to do uh, for for our particular office is uh, currently uh, we serve on transportation infrastructure uh, and homeland security, uh, two very uh, important committees. Uh, but uh, with Stephen Palazzo not returning to Congress, uh, that is going to open up a seat on the Appropriations Committee. Uh, Mississippi has had a representative, uh, on the appropriations committee in the House of Representatives since Jamie Witten. Uh, Jamie Witten served in that capacity. Uh, then you saw at that time, uh, uh, before he became, uh, Senator, Roger Wicker served on appropriations. Alan Nunley was an appropriator. Uh, Stephen Palazzo. Uh, and so, uh, we're going to be making a push, uh, and have already started that, uh, with the steering committee, uh, for us to be able to move off of transportation infrastructure, uh, to move on to appropriations, because that's where we feel that we can do the best job for our state. Uh, We've got Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, who serves as a Senate appropriator. So to have an appropriator both in the House and Senate, uh, I think, gives Mississippi uh, the best chance to make sure uh, that that we are uh, taking care of uh, those critical needs in our state. So
3: apart from what it will do in your role, obviously, if Republicans take control of Congress, you're going to get a new batch of leadership. You'll have a new Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi will, will have to step down, right? You'll have a new majority leader. What is that shaping up to look like in the event that Republicans do what people are anticipating?
1: Well, and I will tell you, you mentioned the fact that Nancy Pelosi will no longer be Speaker. Uh, That's something that is universally praised uh, throughout the campaign trail. Uh, I think people are are looking forward to seeing not only Republicans take over, but they're looking forward to seeing a new Speaker. Uh, uh, Leadership elections will be held one week after the election. So election will be uh, November the 8th. Uh, Leadership elections for the Republican caucus are scheduled on the 15th. Uh, I think it's apparent uh, that um, Kevin McCarthy will be uh, and continue to be the leader of the Republican Party, uh, and he will be the next Speaker of the House. Uh, I'll tell your listeners uh, that no one has worked harder uh, in campaigning for uh, candidates across the country, raising money to secure the majority than Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he is a workhorse. He never goes home. Uh, he is either in Washington, D.C., when we are there uh, serving in Congress, uh, or he is traveling across the country uh, in different districts uh, to support Republican candidates. Uh, and so, uh, clearly, I believe that that he deserves uh, to be the leader of our caucus, followed closely behind him will be Steve Scalise. Uh, Steve Scalise will be um, uh, receiving a promotion from Whip uh, to a Majority Leader. Uh, Steve has done an amazing job. Uh, the fact that he's from our neighboring state of Louisiana, uh, often coming to Mississippi to, to help candidates here. Uh, Steve also has worked extremely hard for us to be able to retake the majority. Uh, and it seems like uh, the, the 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 third race uh, in that leadership is going to be the most hotly contested race as to Whip. Uh, There are currently three candidates who are vying for that, all extremely qualified, uh, and that will probably be a very close race as to determine who will serve in that crucial position next Congress.
3: Obviously, we put a ton of attention on elections, and it, it feels like election seasons get closer and closer to each other, but the whole point of an election is to put people in positions of influence to be able to change things, right? to be able to enact good policy, prevent bad policy from coming to fruition. Tell me a little bit about Kevin McCarthy's plan, because it reminds me of Newt Gingrich's contract with America.
1: You know, uh, he has come out with a commitment to America, focused on things such as uh, the economy, uh, safety, and having Congress accountable to the people. So he's got a plan, and we intend to implement that plan very quickly in January.
3: We've been talking with Congressman Michael Guest from the 3rd Congressional District. Congressman, thank you for coming in and being with us just a few days before the election. Remind everybody to go vote next Tuesday. Next Tuesday,
1: 7 to 7. Please vote. Very
3: good. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Russ Latino, guest hosting from the Element Well Studio. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: Midday's with Gerard. Gert. What? What? This
2: yes. is yes. yes. so yes. awesome.
0: On Super Talk Mississippi.
3: The blues has got a hold of me. I believe I'm getting dizzy. Welcome back, Mississippi. Hope you are doing well on this Thursday. November 3rd, it's a beautiful day in Mississippi, you're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today, Rhino in the studio, we've been kicking it, we talked with 4th uh, Congressional District candidate, Republican nominee, Mike Ezel this morning just spoke with 3rd Congressional District sitting congressman and candidate for re-election, Michael Guest, um, it's always interesting to hear what's going on in Washington, and, and I think it's it's difficult for somebody who has never been in that environment to understand why things don't happen faster or to understand the nature of the gridlock. Uh, having lived up there two years and worked uh, in that world, I can tell you that like just decisions don't get made. Like for, for the average person, it would be maddening to see the level of bureaucracy and sort of diplomatic doublespeak with no results. Um, But that's what people who go up there have to deal with, and they've got to try to find ways to break through that big gridlock wall. Um, And I think what Congressman Guest is anticipating is that it probably looks a lot different than what he's experienced, because he's been in the minority the whole time, if you've got Republican leadership. You've got divided government still, though. You still have a Democrat president, the likelihood of things being undone that have been done in the last two years is difficult. Really what you're positioning yourself for is, can we get to the point that we have both Congress and the presidency and be able to restore some sense of normalcy uh, in this country because it has been a volatile few years. We talked a little bit um, before the break about some of the, or before we talked with Congressman Guest, about just some of the economic turmoil that is going on in the country, and it it really is incredible. Um, you know, we're seeing it again today in the markets as they fluctuate. We're dealing with what the Federal Reserve is doing to try and control interest rates, and, you know, there are all sorts of unintended consequences from that. A big part of the conversation around the economy really has been around the price of gas at the pump. You know, looking at it going... Uh, we went from like $1.19 a gallon at the beginning of 2020, you know, almost to $5 a gallon in some places, and in some places, candidly, a lot higher than that. California, I think, is probably close to 6 $7 because of all of the taxes that they tag on to fossil fuels. You know, if you're the, if you're an average person, and especially in a state like Mississippi, where you really got to drive to work, you know, most people drive further in Mississippi than anywhere else in the country from where they live to their work and it's just the nature of being a relatively rural state when you go to the gas pump and you put in 100 dollars in your tank you feel that cuz that's money literally out of your kids' mouths it's clothes off your kids' backs you know it's it's difficulty paying for other things and then you factor in that that compounds across the entire economy because you know that that can of soup in the grocery store had to be driven in a truck And that truck needs gas to get from point A to point B. And so that can of soup gets more expensive. And there's just a compounding factor across the economy. Even in that environment, the current administration has been so adverse to oil production, so adverse to oil and gas in this country, and so committed to this idea around the Green New Deal and that sort of mentality that really what we should be doing is completely eliminating our dependence on fossil fuels. And that is folly to think that that is possible in a scaled way, in an affordable way, anytime in the near future. And you're in this environment where oil and gas supply has been restricted because of what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine. Demand had come back because of some of the inflation that was occurring with labor and wages. And instead of recognizing the moment, you double down on the idea that you're going to punish producers, and then you essentially lie about it. I mean, from, from the outset, when gas prices started to go higher again, Biden and his administration said it's not our fault. There are 9,000 untapped permits right now. Oil and gas producers just aren't exploring. We want to encourage them to explore Well, it is true that there are 9,000 or were 9,000 untapped permits, but just because you have a permit to dig a well or place a well doesn't mean that there's going to be oil at that well, number one. Two, it's not something that you flip the switch on overnight. You're talking about huge capital expenditures to invest in getting in the ground, and it just doesn't happen uh, the minute you decide, okay, I'm going to actually try and tap this well. But you also have to put in context that while there may be permits out there for oil production, that the president has been on the campaign trail, was on the campaign trail in 2020, has continued to make comments in public about wanting to ban fracking, which is where a lot of our oil exploration now comes from, that process of getting oil out of the ground. They've endorsed portions of the Green New Deal that are all about eliminating reliance on fossil fuels. On the first day Joe Biden was in office, he signed an executive order to halt new permits on federal land, to shut down the Keystone Pipeline project, and to rejoin the Paris Climate Treaty. The very first day he was in office, he did those three things, all of which make it substantially harder for an oil company to make capital expenditure investments. Every part of that makes it harder for that industry to work. As recently as February of this year, the Biden administration actually halted new permits for oil exploration. So they have been so incredibly adverse to that industry. In fact, so much adverse to domestic oil production that they've gone over and tried to negotiate with OPEC. They've demanded the Saudis produce more oil. OPEC is having no part of any of that. Those negotiations have been unsuccessful. But he is trying everything he can do to prevent oil exploration in this country. And then he turns around and says, oh, by the way, we're about to implement a new tax on you guys. Gas is already expensive. Why not we we force you to essentially lose money on the sale of oil and gas, or we'll put a tax on you guys, an additional tax on you guys. It's an attempt at price controls. He's trying to essentially say before the election either artificially bring down the price of your product, potentially losing money, or face the wrath of government. And this is everything that people don't like about government and government control. And the idea that you can exert that kind of power over a private enterprise to try and live up some pipe dream that you have about ultimately not being reliant on fossil fuels without having any regard to the effect that it has on the people that you represent. And those are people who are trying to get to work in Mississippi. Those are people who are trying to get to work in Tennessee and Alabama and Pennsylvania and Ohio and across this country, and we've got a president who is absolutely tone deaf to what those policies will do for average people heading into an election cycle, heading into a midterm election, and across the board, what he's done in all of these instances is to deflect. You know, we've got the highest inflation we've had in 40 years. Well, that's Ukraine's fault. That's Russia's fault. That's anybody but my fault that we've got this inflation. And look, if I'm being truthful, it's not just his fault. The Trump administration bears some blame for some of what they did during COVID. Republicans actually bear some blame for the amount of money that was pumped into the system during COVID. But it is impossible to ignore that Joe Biden got into office and the very first thing he did was light up the spending with the American Rescue Plan at a point when we knew we did not need that. States were already washed with cash. People were already coming out of any economic harm they had suffered during the pandemic because we had dropped helicopter drops of money on top of people. And instead he got into office and he poured gasoline on top of a fire and then he's looking around going, well, who do I blame for the fact that I just poured gasoline on a fire? Putin seems like a good person to blame. Trump seems like a good person to blame. I'm not going to take any of the responsibility for myself. Oh, who do I blame for the fact that gas prices are high? Well, let's point our finger at those evil corporations. Those evil corporations that I essentially have been sending a signal to, to say, look, I'm going to put you out of business eventually. But for the time being, could you help me get reelected? Come on. It is completely disconnected from reality. And I don't say any of this as somebody who is being a Republican apologist. I think the Republican Party has a lot of stuff that they need to fix. But right now, as people think about the election on Tuesday, and as Biden looks for somebody to blame, he needs to stare in the mirror, and assuming he recognizes his likeness, he needs to assume that he is partially responsible for the difficulties that the American people are experiencing Now, but even if he refuses to do that, I think come Tuesday, we're going to find out that the American people are holding him responsible for the circumstances we're experiencing now. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting from the Element Wealth Studio. We'll be back in just a moment. Oh, yeah.
0: Mississippi.
1: It's time for
0: Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Welcome back and good Thursday mid-morning, almost lunchtime. Probably some folks getting in the car thinking about where they're going. Take that little respite from work. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbett, Russell Tino, guest hosting from the Element Wealth Studio. Uh, If you're thinking about or planning retirement, if you're thinking about, hey, do I have a plan for retirement, Uh, you should visit our friends at Element Wealth. You can go to myelementwealth.com or call 601 957 6006 to let Element Wealth help you find the balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Thanks to everybody who are participating uh, via the Ceasefire text line. We've had some great comments uh, from folks coming in over the last couple of segments. Appreciate your questions and your thoughts along the way. If you want to be a part of that conversation, you can join us on the Ceasefire text line at 601-879-4395. We had a conversation already today with uh, a candidate for congressman, and Mike Azell, who's a Republican nominee for the 4th Congressional District, also spoke uh, just recently with 3rd Congressional District Congressman uh, Michael Guest. Always good to hear what they are seeing in D.C. and kind of the environment that they're hearing out on the campaign trail as we get closer to Tuesday's uh, midterm elections, incredibly important election. I've never been a a big fan of this notion of saying it's the most important election in your lifetime, because that feels a little passe since people say it every election. But I do think we are in a unique moment if you look at the level of challenges that we are currently facing. We have gone from a time of prosperity and plenty to a time of real uncertainty economically. At the same time, we've seen huge cultural shifts and upheaval, a lot of that trying to be forced on people. And so I think for a lot of people right now, there's just a general sense of uncertainty and there's a desire to see either some balance where some of the more radical ideas get slowed down or a reversal, of course, back to something that feels normal to them. And so we're going to find out coming up in the uh, election season here on Tuesday, what that looks like in Washington, D.C., um, and certainly heading into 2023 when Mississippi will have its elections. Uh, admittedly, we've got a little bit more normalcy here than in D.C. Um, we'll also see the direction that the people of Mississippi want the state to take. Um, and so it's just that season and plenty to talk about, plenty to to think about and uh, and have water cooler debates over. One of the things I wanted to mention um, this morning, and I failed to mention earlier uh, was the passing of of Dick Hall? Um, I don't know, Rhino, if you guys have talked about this on air or not, but um, you know, Commissioner Hall served as transportation commissioner for the central district. I think for 21 years, it was the longest-serving transportation commissioner in state history. Uh, before that, he served three terms in the Mississippi House, three terms in the Mississippi Senate. Um, and then the Senate had really important leadership roles, With the chairman of public health, was also the chairman of appropriations. Congressman Guest talked about appropriations in the context of the federal government, but appropriations in state are also incredibly, incredibly important. Those roles tend to go to people who are really good at their job, who are thoughtful leaders. Um, And so served with distinction in the legislature before uh, Kirk Fordyce ultimately appointed him to Transportation Commissioner, and then served the longest tenure of anybody that's ever been in one of those positions as Transportation Commissioner, uh, passed away at 84 years old. It leaves a tremendous legacy. I I can tell you there was no better advocate for the Mississippi Department of Transportation Uh, than Commissioner Hall. At times, that led to some disagreements that I had with him on things like gas taxes, uh, but was also a consummate gentleman, uh, and and the state has lost a a good leader there. So our condolences go out to to his family um, in this time. You know, Rhino, I also wanted to mention, as I was looking at Mississippi News this morning, um, and I did not realize this, but the University of Mississippi, or as we like to call it, Ole Miss, now has the largest student body population in the state. Had you heard that?
2: No. Yeah, so... Um, they might have some competition for Mississippi College with their uh, free tuition program.
3: Yeah. is That's, that That is incredible, by the way. That is incredible. I mean, first of all, I, I knew that Leland Speed had been very successful in his career, was a very good businessman. And I also knew that he had a heart for philanthropy. Um, and, and that had been made clear in just watching him while he was alive, the types of things he engaged in, never really for fanfare or self-adulation, but you know, he was beyond, behind uh, creating one of the first charter schools in Mississippi um, and just invested an awful lot in education and believed in education and the need for children to have options. But i got to tell you, the, the generosity level that is at play with that endowment I just had no idea that that was even something that was possible, right? Because he's literally saying, what, that every student who – every Mississippi resident who wants to attend MC gets covered by that endowment.
2: Correct. And there is no limitation on the number of students that can get the endowment in a yearly – year-to-year basis.
3: Which is – I mean, also, you know, we talked about Commissioner Hall – Obviously, um, Mr. Speed passed away a little while ago, but think about that legacy and the number of lives that will ultimately be made much better, and people who have opportunity for education that probably, you know, some of them otherwise couldn't have afforded it. Um, And, you know, I think it gets lost when we tell these stories sometimes that something had to happen to make Leland Speed be in a position to do that, right? Right. We had to have a system that allowed for somebody who had a good idea, was willing to work really hard, figured out how to get along with people, figured out how to create value for other people in his business dealings to be that successful. And the end result of a free enterprise system that allows for that sort of innovation and ingenuity and hard work and allows for a reward to be attached to it is that those people can make a a massive difference in the lives of other people. It really is incredible, and I think it I think it gets lost. We don't talk nearly enough about the level of private philanthropy that happens in our culture. That is a byproduct of people who have found success and give back. You know, I, I worked for a season for for the Koch brothers and people always think of the Koch brothers as these insidious, dark figures, and having been around, there really were four, but having been around the two that, that people think about when they think about the Koch brothers, Charles and David, and David's passed away now, there couldn't be, uh, in, in Charles's case, a more philosophical, thoughtful, generous human being. In David's case, um, you know, he was a New Yorker by the end of his life, so he had that New York sort of personality, but he gave away so much money to things that had nothing to do with politics. and I remember um the day he passed away, um Twitter, you know, is as evil as Twitter can be at times, and were really, really disrespectful on the day he passed away. That was the same day that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been admitted to Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York. and being able to say to people, you realize that the hospital that she's been treated at all these years and is currently being treated at would not exist but for David Koch. He literally funded their entire cancer wing, right? So that research and that facility and that opportunity for at the time Ruth Bader Ginsburg to get world-class treatment does not exist without, one, an economy that allows somebody to become successful because they do something well, and two, the generosity of spirit to say, "This society has blessed me, and so I'm going to find a way to bless other people." And it gets lost often in these conversations.
2: Yeah, really, the only time you hear about philanthropy is right around Christmas time when you have the uh, the secret Santas that come by and pay for everybody's layaway.
3: yeah, or or you know, some of that happens where people are looking for tax deductions at the end of the year. but if you're giving if you're giving one hundred and fifty million dollars to a hospital as an example, that's not about a tax deduction. right? It's about something much, much deeper than that. And we make all of these assumptions about people who have been successful, and I think a lot of those assumptions are really unfair. And, you know, I, I guess I started this by, by mentioning the fact that Ole Miss had, had, had jumped the number one in terms of student population. I think, uh, let, me, let me say this, that's largely because the other universities in the state are actually losing students. Um, Ole Miss did have about a 5% increase in its student population. Literally every other public university in the state of Mississippi lost students year over year. That could make for an entire segment, multiple segments, on why that's happening. Um, but a continuation of the thought around around David Koch and sort of what people do with their money once they've earned success. Did you see um, the back and forth between Elon Musk and AOC? Oh, yeah.
2: Have you seen her latest accusation that she's hurled towards Elon? No, what's she saying? She's saying that he's obsessed with her and has now revoked her privileges of being verified because her verifications aren't working.
3: Well, it's interesting that she says that he's obsessed with her because I was looking at it. She que- keeps tweeting about him. I mean, she's she's tweeting about him and then he has the audacity to respond and somehow that's an obsession on his part. Look.
2: That's her playbook, though.
3: I I don't hero worship Elon because I think he's bizarre enough that he'll eventually do some things that I'm like, oh, I don't like that. Um, But I love what he does because he gets people worked up in a frenzy who are overly sensitive, and he doesn't care. And there's something pretty refreshing about that in a society that's canceling people. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back, Mississippi. I hope you're doing well on this Thursday. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today from the Element Well Studio. If you want to be a part of the conversation, you can join us on the ceasefire text line, 601 879 4395. Middays with Gerard Gibbert and Sports Talk Mississippi will be in downtown Starkville tomorrow. They'll be talking about everything Starkville and Mississippi's college town. Where, where, do you know where they're going to be? I do not I was going to tell people to go out and say hello, but somewhere in Starkville, just listen for Gerard for listen for Gerard and look for a van somewhere, and there they will be. Maybe we'll get that in a bit uh in a Mississippi minute with Steve Azar today on the show with Steve, you'll hear an interview with actor Joel Murray, who will talk about his acting career on hit shows like Mad Men and Shameless, and you'll hear some stories about his brother Bill Murray all-time favorite i love bill murray if i could just hang out with bill murray and steve martin for a while i could probably be okay just
2: kicking the bucket you d- heard about his famous quarrel with chevy chase
3: i have heard about i've heard about the brothers quarrel with chevy oh, chase yeah. i think they both were involved in that little scrap
2: which is what makes that whole scene in caddyshack where they're talking about the grass that's acting, man, because they hated each other. They couldn't stand to be in the same room, but they're they're friendly-ish on screen.
3: As it turns out, at least what I understand is, there are a lot of people who don't like Chevy Chase.
2: Yeah, he's a bit of an abrasive personality and thinks very highly of himself, and if you don't share that same level of admiration for Chevy Chase, then he's not going to like you tough to be chevy
3: (laughs) Uh, but i I will say this that that string of movies in the late 80s early 90s with him he was fun to watch
2: oh yeah he's a funny dude fun to uh, watch funny people can also be very full of themselves sure no doubt well joel murray cool
3: guest on in a mississippi minute with steve azar that's presented by visitmississippi.org you can hear the show today between 1 and 2 p.m so essentially when rhino and i are done don't go anywhere Stick around and listen to in a Mississippi Minute. You were telling me um, during break that Ray Guy also passed away.
2: Yeah, we got that news this morning. Uh, He passed away at the age of 72, the former Southern Miss punter. I believe he was the first punter selected in the first round of the NFL draft, and he even has the uh, punting award in collegiate football named after him.
3: I have always thought, That despite the mess that kickers get and punters get, that if I had ever been athletic enough to play football, you know, beyond like, you know, junior high or junior varsity, um, I I would have liked to have been a professional kicker because I think it's a pretty good gig. Oh, yeah. The, The longevity, if you're good, the longevity is incredible, right? You're not getting waylaid left and right. It's not a bad gig. Just saying. Sorry to hear that about Reagan. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit uh, before the last break about uh, the situation with AOC and and Elon, and I think some of it, you know, she obviously likes the notoriety of the back and forth, and I think Elon just loves being a troll, essentially, um, and it's sort of like I'm a you know a mega-billionaire. It doesn't really affect me if you like me or not, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a little bit of fun in the process. And look, I mean, he's clearly a different dude; he thinks differently. Um, but it is amazing how triggered people are by him—just astounding. And you know, if you think about this whole Twitter thing, I think initially he wasn't even trying to actually own it. Like, I think he was just trying to make a point. And then Twitter was like, no, we're going to force you to buy us. <laughs> so so it, it was clear that he didn't necessarily want to go through with it. But ultimately, I think because the law was probably going to work against him, he did. But people who are looking at him coming into Twitter, you know, as some sort of end of the world apocalyptic thing. We talked about Joe Biden deflecting earlier. It is an incredible amount of uh, deflection or projection that's going on. When you criticize Elon Musk for wanting there to be some degree of diversity of thought on Twitter or acting as if that's an attack on democracy, because you look at the numbers, 99% of all political contributions from Twitter employees go to Democrat candidates. I'm not making that up. Google it. You don't believe me? Google it. Worth a Google. 99% of all political contributions from Twitter employees go to Democrat candidates. Do you think, even if they're trying to be unbiased, do you think if you're in a room of people who agree exactly with what you believe, that that's not going to factor into the way that you think about content moderation and algorithms and cancellations? And then if you look at the content being produced, 70% of content on Twitter is produced by self-identified liberals, according to Pew Research, right? They're producing at a two-to-one ratio over conservatives so this notion that they are acting as some sort of paragon of diverse thought in the beginning is crazy and how threatened they are by the idea that conservatives might actually have a platform for an equal voice in the marketplace of ideas they see that as a threat to democracy it's not what what is a threat to democracy and fascism is when you literally silence other people's viewpoints because you don't like them so for my part on this film with twitter One, it's fun watching him gig AOC, but two, I'm glad he's in the position he's in. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russ Latino, guest hosting. We will be back in just a moment.
0: Get ready. Get ready. To go beyond the headlines. And join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi.
3: Welcome back, Mississippi. Good Thursday. Not morning anymore. Lunch hour, noon hour. Getting out, getting about. Get you something to eat. Taking a little break. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Latino, guest hosting today. Been having a great conversations here this morning. Appreciate everybody who have been texting in. Appreciate our guest. If you've got thoughts that you'd like to share and be part of the conversation, you can do so on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. We're coming at you live from the Element Wealth Studio, Rhino in the booth. Oh, let's talk about the midterms. We've been sort of teasing it for, I don't know, two hours, give or take, touching on it here and there. Let's dig in and, and get detailed about what's going on here. I think it is important as we think about the elections next Tuesday and what's going to happen with control of Congress to have some real appreciation of sort of the climate that we are currently in. And we've talked about this a lot in other contexts and in other shows, just the how bad the economy is. We've talked about it in this show earlier about sort of the turmoil that we're experiencing between runaway inflation that was predictable, if you were willing to look and read the tea leaves, you've got massive government expenditures because of COVID, coming out of COVID, you had businesses being shuttered at the same time, so you reduce the supply of products and services, and the end result of that is textbook high inflation. And they let it run, and they let it run, and they kept saying... Don't worry about it. It's not a problem until it was a problem. And then all of a sudden it was, holy heck, we got to do something. And so they've gone on an interest rate hiking campaign, really high, you know, the highest rates we've seen since 2007. If you look at mortgage rates, even higher on those because of how they're tied to the Fed fund rates. The entire economy is in a perilous situation, and it's in a perilous situation Not because government hasn't done enough. It is in a perilous situation because government has done far too much. It has put its finger on the scale in a way that has been reckless, in a way that was predictably reckless, and we are reaping the consequences of it every day, not just in a macro sense, but when you go to the grocery store, you feel it. When you pull up to the gas pump right now, you're feeling it. And the, the one side of the equation, solution to all of this, is more government control, more command and control economics. You see it with the Green New Deal mentality. Even that, that whole package of things has never moved. The ideas keep popping back up like weeds, Right. We need more government control over ener- energy. We need more government control over the job market. We need more government control over construction. We need more government control over health care. On and on and on down the line, those things keep popping up, and the goal is to get to a point where the federal government, in a centralized way, controls every aspect of the economy, and if they control every aspect of the economy, candidly, they control every aspect of your life. You're sitting here looking at a situation where the idea of law and order at the border has been thrown out the window. And look, let me say this. I'm not one of these people that is uh, against immigration. I think we need immigration in this country. I think this country was founded on the idea of immigration, with people from different cultures coming together around a set of ideas. A set of ideas about freedom, about individual agency, about free speech, all of those things that were tied up at our founding that were so revolutionary. And really it was people from all over the world that came and acclimated to those ideas or pushed those ideas imperfectly at times, but that has been the trajectory of our country towards freedom, but but it's a lot of different people tied up in those ideas. So I'm for immigration. I think we also have to recognize that a nation without borders is not a nation, right? Part of what makes a country a country is the ability to control who comes in and who leaves, Right. And to ensure that when we're letting people into this country, it's being done in an orderly way, it's being done in a way that we're not posing a security threat to people who are already here. And oh, by the way, that's not just a view of someone who's already here going, you know, I've been here for a long time, so let's not let anybody else in. That's the view of people who went through the system recently as immigrants. Overwhelmingly, immigrants favor an orderly process because they did what was required. Right? they took the steps and they don't they don't support the idea of just an open spigot with no control at all but that is the mentality of a fringe of people that control one of the major political parties in the United States that same mentality is the mentality that says let's defund the police even though literally no one actually wants that right it's that sliver of people that presume that they are speaking for everyone else When in reality, you see it, whether it's Caucasian communities or African-American communities or Hispanic communities, what people want is to know that they can safely participate in their own communities. They want to know that their kid can walk to the bus stop and not be a victim of some crime. They want to know that if, for instance, they accidentally left their house unlocked, somebody's not going to come in it. Right? And those are not unreasonable expectations. And what you see is actually at a higher percentage in African-American communities, saying that they want more police presence and that they want tightening to make sure that their communities are safe. So this notion of defunding the police that's been around is not something that's mainstream. It's not mainstream in the Republican Party. It's not mainstream in the Democrat Party. It is a fringe of people that are pushing an extreme ideological agenda on things like that. You look at what we're dealing with on a foreign scale right now, whether it's a botched um, leaving from Afghanistan, whether it's looking at what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, whether it's looking at the threat that China poses with Taiwan and the reality that they probably see us as being weaker than we've been in a very long time and are willing to stretch and push and push that envelope and see what they can get away with. All of these things unfolding at once present real risk to the national security of the United States at a time where economically we're not able to do what we would need to do to defend ourselves and not believing that the person who is in power is capable of sending a message of strength that allows our enemies to know that we're not going to accept them pushing that envelope. There's corruption and corruption that feels complicit with the media candidly if you look at the Hunter Biden laptop story as an example. We were told over and over again that this was some fabrication of right-wing nut jobs and that there was no Russian
2: there. misinformation.
3: Yeah, no they're there. And now Biden's own FBI is like, "Eh, <laughs> there might be something there." Right? But candidly, the media was complicit in not taking that seriously and being very quickly to slap a label on it as some sort of right-wing conspiracy. And then you look at where we are in terms of our culture right now heading into this midterm, and there is a full frontal assault on truth and normalcy going on in this country. And I think Joe Sixpack looks at it and says, some of the stuff that you're telling me that I should believe to be true now is absurd. And I don't accept it. I remember there was a... Rhino, you'll appreciate this because I think you're a Norm Macdonald fan based on our previous exchanges. When he had Norm Macdonald live, he was interviewing Stephen Merchant once. And um, he used the word cisgender. And Stephen Merchant legitimately, he wasn't being ironic, said, I don't know what that means. And uh, Norm's response was something along the lines of, well, it's a way of telling uh, male... Who was born a male and believes himself to be a male, um, it's essentially a way to marginalize a normal person. Right? So we're coming up with terminology and frameworks that say that if you're in the vast majority of people biologically, you're born a male, you think you're a male. You're born a woman, you think you're a woman. There's something wrong with you, right? There's something odd about you. And I think the average person in Varying communities, communities that sometimes identify as Democrat communities, African-American communities, Hispanic communities, across the board, they look at that kind of stuff and say, this is just crazy, guys. You know, the the Latin American community will tell you this notion of Latinx, or Latinx, or however you say it, I should know because my last name is Latino and people give me a hard time, but they will tell you that there's nothing more offensive to them than that. Because their entire language is based around masculine and feminine words. The entire language recognizes what biology has always recognized. But we're living in a society where if you look at the sky and say it's blue, someone is going to tell you that you're a bigot for calling the sky blue. And I think people are kind of fed up with it. Just my take. Listen to midday's with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting. When we come back. We are going to dig into the races. We'll take the Senate races one by one. We'll talk about what's going on with the House of Representatives nationally. We'll even talk about some governors' races. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. It out. Now, on to the real part. Mike. on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome
3: back, Mississippi. To Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today. Glad to be with you on this Thursday at lunchtime. We're talking about the lead-up to the midterm elections. We've seen a lot of shift over the last couple of weeks. Rhino, I, I know I was on with you maybe a month ago or so, and my take was we're going to win the House, but we're probably going to lose the Senate. Um, and if you ask me right now, I'd say that I think there's a very good chance that Republicans win both the House and and the US Senate and part of the reason for that is what we were talking about during break is i think the republicans at least on the senate side have actually put up some fairly poor candidates i think herschel walker is a flawed candidate That's one a, way to put it a deeply flawed candidate right who admits that he is dumb or too dumb to have a debate those are his words not mine right who is pro life with no exceptions, but now has been seriously implicated in at least two abortions that he's been involved with. You know, on and on and on. So there there are plenty of things that you could point at a Herschel Walker and say, who vetted this candidate? Was it only, hey, he played football at Georgia, so he's going to be popular, let's run him for the U.S. Senate. Or did somebody actually do some oppo research on our own side and say, eh, we can get, we get around this. But I would argue that some of these candidates have not been well vetted. But it's changing nonetheless, and it's changing because I think voters are sophisticated enough to look at a race like the Georgia race and say, this isn't about Herschel Walker becoming some thought leader in the U.S. Senate. It's a question of whether or not we can elect a group of people who will serve as a check or a balance to what we view as some really radical ideas. So it's it's not about Walker, and it's not about Doctor Oz. It's about the way our system of government works. If you have a majority in Congress, and you've got a president in another party, you can you can stop the radicalism. And that one person that you might look at and say, you know what, I wish we had nominated somebody else. That's fine. But you recognize that person as part of a caucus or a conference and not as sort of an individual agent if that makes any sense and I think that's what's happening as these polls are shifting, you know, and I think part of it is what we were talking about before break, Rhino there is just such an extreme movement that is adverse to what most people believe, oh yeah, and it's being shoved down people's throat. To the point that extremism really has become a virtue, right? It's like, how weird can you be? That's what we're going to celebrate, right? And so you're looking at it going... To the point where
2: they're inventing genders and sexualities. Like, my new favorite sexuality that they've come up with is recipro-sexuality. It's got its own flag. It's got its own champions, Recipro-sexuality is defined as being attracted to someone only after you learn that they are attracted to you. <laughs> I thought that was just called attraction.
3: Or desperation. Well. <laughs> there's, there's one way to look at it. No, but I mean, th- there are people today who identify as furries. Have you heard of this? Oh, yeah. They they identify as an animal instead of a person. Right. And we're looking at that, and and we're conflating respect with something else, because I want to respect every person I come across. I want to show compassion and love to every person I come across. But that is very different than saying, you know what, if you want to act like you're an animal, just be an animal, right? That used to be seen as a mental defect, if you believed you were another species, And I think there are enough people out there still who are like, this is just crazy to normalize this kind of behavior, to treat radical extremism as if it is virtuous and normalcy as if it is a problem. You look at the fact that science only counts now when it comports with an agenda. You know, I was a believer in telling people to get vaccinated. I was. I'm sure there's some people on the text line that are not going to like me for that. I was a believer that there needed to be some social distancing. I didn't agree with the shuttering of businesses. I thought that there was science and data that supported certain choices. But if you're telling me to trust the science on COVID because it fits into your agenda, and then you're not willing to say somebody born with an XX chromosome is a woman and somebody born with an XY chromosome is a man, you're not trusting the science. You're manipulating science to achieve an outcome, and what that does is erode any trust in science. And that's the world that we're living in. We become so sensitive that we get to silence people that we don't want to hear from, right? you see this thing with, with Stephen Colbert? Oh, yeah. So Colbert comes out. Tudor Dixon said um, that she had been approached by a man in Michigan. Tudor Dixon's running for governor in Michigan and against the incumbent there been approached by a man at one of her rallies, and this man told her that he was switching from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party, and his reason was simple. There was a library book in one of his children's schools that talked about how a father could have sexual relations with his son. So incestuous pedophilia is what we're talking about. And it's in a library book in an elementary school And he came up and said, I can't abide by this. I'm switching to the Republican Party. I want to be abundantly clear that I'm a big fan of free speech. I don't believe in banning books, burning books, any of that stuff. But we are in a crazy world where we would normalize putting a book in a public school library funded by taxpayers that suggests that there is something maybe not okay with but presents the idea that a father could have an incestuous pedophilia relationship with his son, it's no wonder people are scratching their head going, I just can't be a part of that. Right? Anyway, so Colbert comes out and says, she's lying. She made this man up. It was a figment of her imagination. You know, sarcastically, that happened, air quotes. And the Detroit Free Press, to their credit, came back and said, No, actually, there's a videotape of it. It did happen, right? And you've got somebody in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a heavy Muslim population that has been voting Democrat for a long time, and this guy is saying, you know what, those guys have jumped the shark, and we're going to switch parties. I think that what we're about to see in the midterm could shock some people. You know, we've been talking about this sort of red wave, blue wave, every couple of years, this this conversation about waves right. occurs. I think that there is a chance that what you see is much larger percentages of people who used to be considered a lock for the Democrat base saying, socially they've gone too far. Culturally they've gone too far. Telling me we need to fund the police is going too far. And I'm at least going to consider the option of jumping over to the other team. And the numbers suggest that that could happen a big way. Only 17% of Americans say they're satisfied with the direction of this country, 17%. And that's incurring in an environment where Democrats have control of the presidency and both chambers of Congress. They're saying they're not satisfied. That is the worst percentage on the Gallup poll on the direction of the country since any midterm since 1982. And in circumstances where the dissatisfaction registered has been higher than the satisfaction registered on this Gallup poll, in a first-term incumbent presidency, in that midterm, the party in power generally loses 46 seats. It is an average loss of 46 seats. You combine that with the fact that there's a 21% approval rating of Congress right now, that's the second worst in a midterm since Gallup has been doing this. 21% approval rating you got Biden's approval rating at 40% it's the worst for a first-term incumbent since Gallup has been doing this all of those things indicate something that maybe the polls aren't even picking up on if you look at those numbers and compare it to track records in the past when numbers have been close to this low what you see are huge shifts. And it calls into question some of the polling that's going on right now. I know for many election cycles, people have been questioned polling. I think right now there's a reason to believe that some of these 0.2% races or these you know 0.5% races will not be that close. I think that by and large, there is a percentage of Republican, conservative electorate, whatever you want to call them, that have decided that they no longer respond to polls. And I think there's a percentage of people who typically vote Democrat that aren't getting polled in order for the cross tabs to be accurate, and they're not getting reflected in some of these numbers. When we come back, we will talk about the actual numbers in each race. You're listening to Midday with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting.
0: Mississippi is with Gerard Gibbert. It is on, on Super Talk, Mississippi.
3: Welcome back, Mississippi. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting from the Element Well studio. Gerard will be back tomorrow doing a remote in Starkville with Sports Talk be downtown Starkville tomorrow talking about everything going on over in Stark Vegas. I will be on tomorrow uh, guest hosting for Gallo, So I'll jump from program to program. An early start. An early start. You got to get up early for that. That's oh right. yeah. Uh, well look, we've been uh, we've been teasing actually talking numbers, getting the brass tax. Let's do it. Um, obviously the election midterm elections next Tuesday All of the numbers about what people are saying in their dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs suggest if there's any sort of following of historical uh, norms that what we're going to get is a Republican Congress. You've got a Democrat president in control. Oftentimes when there's dissatisfaction with one party's president in a midterm, you see a massive sweep. There's a lot of reason for dissatisfaction and a lot of dissatisfaction registered with the current administration, the House has never really been a question. Republicans are going to take the U.S. House of Representatives. The only question there is by how many. There's some evidence to suggest that it could be in the 40s. There's some people who are prognosticating that it'll only be in the 20s. I suspect it's going to be higher than it is shorter because I don't think the polls are accurately reflecting the way people feel. I don't think they're actually accounting for the fact that That some of the people that normally would have been in the demographic sections that vote Democrat, if you had pulled them now, what you would see is some of them are considering voting Republican because of some of the craziness that we've been talking about. So the U.S. Senate has always been the question. And several weeks ago, I thought, well, Republicans are going to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They have not put up the right people. They're not doing the right message. They're going to lose this thing. The last couple of weeks, that opinion has changed. There is a clear sea change as people are looking at where the country is, going, I'm not voting for an individual senator. I'm voting to stop what the other side is thinking and doing. And because of that, I think we're going to uh, see Republicans take the U.S. Senate. So here's what that's got to look like. There are three seats that are in contention that are currently held by Republicans, that are tight races. Pennsylvania is one of them. We've talked about John Fetterman versus Dr. Oz. Um, For much of this race, Oz was dramatically behind. And I think what people have realized, candidly, is that Fetterman is not capable of serving in the role. Um, I'm not giving him a hard time because he had a stroke. I'm sympathetic to the fact that he had this medical event in his life. But the reality is... That if you're going to serve in the US Senate, you probably should be in a position to understand verbal communication and to be able to communicate back. And when you start a debate against an opponent by telling the audience good night instead of hello, it's probably a sign that things are just not clicking the way they should be clicking. I think most people in Pennsylvania are getting that. And right now, the average of polls on real Real clear politics has Fetterman up by 0.2%. But that suggests that Oz has come way back and all of the momentum is with him. I would expect Dr. Oz to win the seat in Pennsylvania. Also, a flawed candidate, by the way. But I expect him to win the seat in Pennsylvania. Ohio's another one of those seats. You had Rob Portman retire. Uh, that's J.D. Vance and Congressman Tim Ryan running against each other. It's been pretty tight, but again, the trajectory shows Vance going up. Right now, the average of the polls is at uh, 2.6% for Vance right now, within the margin of error. But I think what we're going to see is that the real number, because of some of the bias in polling, uh, Vance is going to win by more than that. Uh, So I think Vance will win Ohio. And then the other seat that was in question early on was Ron Johnson's seat in Wisconsin. Johnson is running for re-election, so this is not an open seat. Um, There was some question about how he was going to perform. He's opening up a little bit of a lead in Wisconsin, too. Still tight. Um, but those are the three seats that Republicans would have to maintain to stay at 50, right? So they win those three seats. They're at 50. So what are the seats where a 51, 52, 53 pickup could occur? Um, New Hampshire is one that's not been talked about a lot.
2: But if that one look, got squishy in the last couple of weeks. It did.
3: So New Hampshire is one of those weird states, If you've ever visited there, it's a weird state. It's a cool state, but it's weird. They have certain conservative sensibilities, and they also have certain liberal sensibilities. It's a weird mix of beliefs. Um, And so there's been a Republican governor in New Hampshire, um, and it is looking like that race is tightening in a way that right now the Democrat candidate has a 0.5% lead in the average of polls. So that's anybody's game right there. Um, Arizona probably is uh, the least likely for a pickup out of all the seats, Um, but it is tight in two. Um, Mark Kelly, who's an astronaut, who is the husband of Gabby Giffords, who, of course, suffered suffered at the hands of an assailant and was shot. Um, Kelly's a strong candidate, has been a strong candidate in Arizona, um, but his lead has diminished there. It's down to 2.3%, and there are a lot of people who think that Masters is gaining, That could be a seat to look at on election night. You should be looking at it on election night. But that's probably the one that would be the hardest pickup for Republicans. Nevada is a state that early on nobody would have seen, but right now Adam Laxalt, Republican, former Republican attorney general, uh, has a 1.9% lead over Cortez Mastro. That's a seat that I think Republicans are looking at very closely as a potential pickup that would put them over the top. And then lastly, the Georgia race. Between Walker and Warnock, right now, Walker has opened up a very slight lead in the average of polls to 1.5%. So you're looking at three three seats that you've got to maintain, and then if you want a majority, you've got to win one of the four, or if you lose one of the seats, you need to maintain two of the four. As you look at the numbers and the mood of the country, if you're a betting person, I think you would bet the Republicans will have a 51-52 seat majority at the end of election night, or maybe the next day, depending on how things go.
2: And when you look at the analysis of, of all the aggregate polls, Nevada's the weird one because it's the only state in the in the toss-up states where the polling has underestimated Democrat support in the past by, a, by larger than two or three percentage points. Usually, the polls underestimate GOP support by a handful of percentage points, whereas Nevada... For whatever reason, the polls underestimate Democrat support. Yeah. Year in, year out.
3: No, and and, and look, you could be right on that. Um, nobody really has a crystal ball. True. Um, despite the fact that some of us pretend to do so occasionally. I, I will say that this has all the feeling of momentum having been lost on one side and gaining dramatically in the last few days on the other. Um so my money, I'm not actually betting on this, but let's hypothetically say that I was, would be on a Republican majority in the Senate at the end of all this. There are also some interesting races going on across the country, uh, gubernatorial races. You following any of that? few of them, yeah. So, I mean, Arizona's a good example. Um, Kari Lake has, has carved out a niche um, and seems to be doing... Well, seems to be likely to to get that seat. There are some other states that have been surprising, though, like I don't think Hochul will go down in New York,
2: but that, I don't know. you got the naked cowboy against her now. now see that
3: that has turned into a tight race.
2: The famous New York Times Square, whatever naked cowboy, the guy in his underwear with the boots playing on his guitar for busking purposes, covered his entire guitar. With, uh, I guess it wouldn't be anti hocal It would just be pro-Republican stickers.
3: You look at New York, again, I don't think she will lose, even with the Naked Cowboy, although that's a great selling point, I guess. Um, I think if she lost, it would be because she's completely indifferent to real problems that are occurring in New York City right now, as an example. Um but that it's even close says something. That there's some conversation about Oregon having a Republican governor at the end of this night says something. That there was conversation about whether or not Murray could be beat for the U.S. Senate seat out in Washington says something, right? I'm not calling that those seats are going to change hands. I'm saying that in past cycles, we wouldn't even have been talking about the possibility. And now we're sitting here talking about the possibility that there could be a Republican governor in New York or Oregon, right, or a Republican senator coming out of Washington,
2: right? Which there, especially in Oregon, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the Democrat policies and how that's played out with the the rise in homelessness and the lack of economic growth and crime running rampant. It's it's got a lot of people that traditionally – lean democrat thinking i don't know about that so you might be listening to
3: me and if you're a conservative or republican thinking well that sounds like great news and maybe it is if you want to stop a radical agenda but the real question is assuming that election night on tuesday goes the direction that i'm talking about what are republicans going to do with it how are they going to use it what are they going to do To try and roll back some of the bad ideas and advance some good ideas, or are we just gonna fall back on the finger pointing game that is the nature of politics right now? When come back, we're gonna discuss that to close out the show. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. We'll be right back from the Element Wealth studio.
0: What that means, Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk, Mississippi.
3: You're, you're bringing out the drummer and Russ. It also reminds me of, like, you know, 1990s youth group. Oh, yeah. A little switch foot. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting from the Element Well Studio. Been a fun day, Rhino. Appreciate you, man.
2: We try to have some fun. We
3: had a little fun. Gave a little information out. Had some good comments from folks on the C Spire text line along the way. Had a couple good guests. Talked to a congressman and... Probably a soon-to-be congressman, if that district is to be understood correctly, uh, with uh, Sheriff Mike Ezell running down in the fourth congressional district as the Republican nominee. And then we talked to Congressman Michael Guest. We just talked a little bit about you know the likelihood of of a change not only in the U.S. House of Representatives but the Senate. Gave you some information on where what I think seven key races are, right? So you got those three that a Republican held currently. Do they stay Republican held and you got four seats in New Hampshire, Arizona, where else did I say? My brain just went blank, man. That's no good. Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. Those places. Something like
2: that. And New Hampshire. Yeah, and New Hampshire.
3: Florida. Yeah, yeah. We're good. We're good. We we'll get there eventually. So those are the seven seats to to watch next Tuesday night. Going to be interesting. Obviously get out and vote. I said before the break though. That even if you have this massive red wave that some people are anticipating, one, you've got to have reasonable expectations because you've got a Democrat president who's still in office. So the opportunity to really roll anything back is going to be difficult. The opportunity to push anything forward is going to be difficult. The opportunity to me is to reassert what it means to be conservative and Republican, to have a very clear vision for what needs to be accomplished in this country. And I will give some credit to the likely Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, in that his move with the Commitment to America plan reminds me a lot of what Newt Gingrich did in 1994 with the contract with America. It is a statement of ideas that Republicans should support, right? Whether it's becoming energy independent and recognition we talked about this earlier of the attacks on the oil and gas industry, domestic oil production in the United States, recognizing that we needed all of the above energy strategy that includes oil and gas. And we don't need to treat producers of oil and gas as our enemy, but as an important part of the nation's infrastructure. So that's something that's in the, the commitment with America looking at. Um, You know, securing the border, looking at ensuring that law enforcement actually does have resources, that we're not defunding the police, but we're making sure they have the right resources to make sure that communities are safe and streets are safe across this country. And one of the interesting things that they've talked about is a parent's bill of rights so that parents have more say in their kids' education and government gets held more accountable by parents. For a long time, there's been this sort of mental approach that education no longer belongs to parents, that they are not active participants. They send their kids to government schools, and then government schools get to tell their kids what to believe. In Mississippi, that's not really a much of a problem because many of the teachers, or most of the teachers in Mississippi schools come from our communities, share a lot of the same value systems and beliefs that we have. But it has never been the responsibility of someone else to educate your child. It has always been the responsibility of parents to ensure that children are educated properly, to ensure that children are educated in line with their values. And we, we've ceded so much of that authority away. And the end result is not a good end result, right? So the idea that we want to empower parents to make decisions for their own families, what's in the best interest of their own kids, is a positive idea. I'm glad that this is being rolled out as something to attach to versus just pointing the finger at the other side and all of the things that you may disagree with the other side on. Like instead of engaging in rank tribalism, that we're actually saying, if you're a Republican, you're for something, right? I think where the skepticism comes into play, and I'll close out with this thought, is that we've seen this show before. And if you think about the rise of a Donald Trump as an example in 2016, I think that happened because for a very long time, Republicans kept telling voters we're for family values, we're for smaller government, we're for freedom. But what we got out of Washington, D.C., even when they had the ability to do things, was more of the same bureaucracy, more of the same big government more of the same entrenchment or or imposition on individual freedoms. And so there's skepticism about whether or not there are campaign words or whether or not it's something that we actually believe and are going to act upon. That skepticism is justified. We'll see how it turns out. You've been listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Russell Tino, guest hosting. It's been a lot of fun. Gerard will be back tomorrow from Starkville. I will be on Gallo tomorrow morning if you like to listen to that program. Hope you have a great Thursday, great rest of the week, and great weekend. It'll
2: like the whole wide world is down on you. to you, courtesy.